We are going to be looking at Exodus chapters 15, 16, and 17. But just to get us started this morning, I'm going to read Exodus 16, verses 23 through 35. This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake, and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over the side will be kept until the morning. So they laid it aside until the morning, as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. And Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not... you up out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna for 40 years until they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for providing for your people. I pray that this morning, as we consider these chapters, which remind us of your provision and remind us that we can trust you and rest in you, that you would, would impact our hearts with that truth. Help us to trust. Help us to rest. In Jesus' name, amen. We are advancing slowly through the story of the Exodus. We have seen most recently the plagues on Egypt, and we've seen the crossing of the Red Sea. We've seen how God has triumphed, shown his sovereignty, his power over the gods of Egypt, over the peoples of Egypt, over Pharaoh, and importantly shown to his people Israel that he is sovereign, that he is powerful, that he is the only God, and that they can trust him. We saw how at the crossing of the Red Sea, in that, in that famous story that we're all familiar with, when Israel had its back to the sea and in front of it, they saw the, the hordes of Egypt, the chariots of Egypt bearing down on them and they were afraid. We saw how God spoke to Moses and said, I, I will fight for you. I will fight for you. All you have to do is just wait and see, be silent. Right? And it's, that, it's that, that message that we're seeing. them uh, perfectly in order, 1, 2, 3, 15, 16, 17, which I know is the usual way that we read narratives like this, but we're actually going to be looking at them a little bit differently. I want to demonstrate to you that these chapters form what's called a chiasm. A chiasm, you, you might be aware, is, is, is a structure that's common in Hebrew narrative and, and Hebrew organization where uh, the, the first part of a passage and the last part of a passage are parallel to each other. And the second part of the passage and the second to the last part of the passage are parallel to each other. And so on and so forth in such a way that the, the attention of the reader or the listener is drawn to what's in the very center. You can, you can imagine a bullseye with, with, the, with the center being the, the target that needs to be hit. And that's what we're going to see that these chapters form. And so as we look at these chapters, we're going to talk first of all about what we see in chapter 15 and the end of chapter 17. And we're going to see how God provides victory. 
And by the way, these, these three main points are printed on the back of your handout uh, if you need them to help make sense of what we're talking or help follow along as we go through it. We're going to see first that God provides, fic- uh, provides victory. We're going to see second that God provides sustenance. And then third, right in the, in the center part of the passage, we're going to see that God provides rest. God provides victory, God provides sustenance, and God provides rest. It is through God's eternal labor that we are granted eternal rest. So we're going to begin by looking at Exodus 15, verses 1 through 21. This is the the victory song, the song that the children of Israel sang after after they saw the Egyptians defeated in the Red Sea. I'm going to read the whole thing. It reads like a psalm. I realize that uh, reading long passages of scripture tends to lead to people falling asleep. So if that's your tendency, stand up and walk around a little bit. That's okay. All right. But listen and hear the word of the Lord. Exodus 15. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war, the Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them, they went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty you overthrow your adversaries, you send out your fury, it consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword and my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, and they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as stone, till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and forever. Notice a few things about this song of victory over the Egyptians. Notice five ways, five, five ways that the Israelites praise God in the midst of this song. First of all, they praise God for his victory over his enemies. That's the obvious one, right? It's a song of victory. They've just seen the Egyptians drowned in the sea, their enemies destroyed. And so the song is a, is a song of praise to God for his victory over his enemies. But notice also, it's a song of praise to God for his covenant love for his people. In verse 13, he says, You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. That, that steadfast love, that's that word that we're familiar with from the Old Testament, hesed. It's God's covenant love. It's his faithful love. It's the love which is expressed in God's promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And so in this sense that the people of Israel are doing is they're, they're praising God for his faithfulness. 
that praising God that he has loved his people as he said he would. This song praises God for his redemption of his people. Verse 13, they say, you have guided them whom you have redeemed. And again, in verse 16, it mentions that they have been purchased by God. They're, they're saying not only has God, uh, has God fulfilled his promises to his people, not only does he love his people as he promised to do, but, but that love works itself out in his redemption, his rescuing of his people. The song praises God for his global fame, doesn't it? In verse 11, they say, who is like you, O, God, o Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? This is the practical outworking of everything that they had seen over the previous months in Egypt as they saw plague after plague where God shows his power over the gods of Egypt. And their natural and right response is, who is like you? You are greater than any. And they, they say that the result that this is going to have on the nations is that they're all hearing about the truth of God. Verses 14 and 15 and 16, they say, Trembling has seized the inhabitants of Philistia. The chiefs of Edom are dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. The inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. All of the nations, in other words, are hearing what God has done in Egypt. They're all hearing how great the Lord is. They're all hearing about how God has set his love on Israel and redeemed them. And all of the nations are, are realizing new truths about this, this Yahweh, the God of Israel. They're trembling. Right? Which, by the way, is exactly what God said was going to happen. All through the Exodus, God said, in fact, in one of Moses' messages to Pharaoh, as he was given it by God, he says, this is why I've raised you up. So that I might show my power to the ends of the earth. And they praise God for this. Notice one other thing about this song too before we move on. This song praises God for his grace in dwelling with his people. It's one of the minor themes of the song, but it's there. Look at what he says. Look what the song says in verse 13. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. And again in verse 17, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. This, this teaches us, friends, that the promised land, the land of Canaan to which God was bringing the Israelites is not just a good place for the Israelites. It's not just some, some, some really nice place that God has established for them to live. This is the place where God has chosen for himself to live with his people. The thing that makes the promised land good for Israel is not that it flows with milk and honey, which is a strange metaphor by any stretch of the imagination. The thing that makes the promised land good is not that it's just there in the Fertile Crescent and lots of good things grow there. The place that makes the promised land good is that God has promised to make it his abode. It's where God will be with his people. This is important because as we go forward through the Pentateuch, and not just there, but all through the rest of Scripture, this idea of God dwelling with his people becomes a larger and larger theme. It's in its infancy here, but it's going to grow and become strong as the Scripture progresses. So keep it in your mind. This is a song of praise to God because of his victory over the Egyptians. And, and before we go to the other end of this chiasm in chapter 17 and, and see God's victory in another way, I want to pause and just note a, a point of application here. As we're dealing with the various trials of our lives, it's useful for us to deliberately find things to praise God for, isn't it? How can we praise God? It's important for us to take time to remind ourselves of the many things that God has done for us 
and praise him for them. I don't mean to say that this is always an easy thing to do. On the contrary, it's been my experience that the that the harder the trials you're facing, or at least the, the graver they are in your mind, the weightier they are in your mind, the harder it is for you to take your focus off of them and focus on the good things that God has done for you. But it's worth doing. I believe that. And I think that this, this declares this truth to us here. It's good for us to remind ourselves of who God has declared us to be and what he has done for us. It's good for us to remind ourselves of these truths about God like the Israelites do here, especially, especially when we are tempted to believe lies about ourselves, either lies that somebody else says to us or lies that we say to ourselves, or when we're tempted to believe lies about our life and circumstances, it is good for us to, to immerse ourselves in the truth of who God is, who he has said we are, and what he has done for us. We see Israel here praising God for their victory over the Egyptians. Turn to chapter 17. We're going to go to the other end of the chiasm, the, the other end of the passage. Chapter 17, verses 8 through 16, where we see a parallel victory. In chapter 15, we see God's victory over the Egyptians uh, sung, sung about. At the end of chapter 17, we see God's victory over the Amalekites. Follow along while I read this, this paragraph. Here's what it says. Exodus 17, verses 8 through 16. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. And so Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. And so his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Now, there's many things to distract our attention in this, in this passage, many things uh, worth noting. But the things I want to draw your attention to this morning have to do with the parallels between this description of God's victory over Amalek, the Amalekites, and the description of God's victory over the Egyptians at the Red Sea in chapters 14 and 15. There are parallels here. The first and the most obvious one being that both passages describe the defeat of an enemy military, uh, which is the clue that this is a Hebrew chiasm of sorts. But there's also a major parallel in one of the details about the defeat of the Amalekites and the Red Sea defeat of the Egyptians. Notice the picture of Moses that is presented in each story. Here, with the defeat of the Amalekites, we have this image of Moses on the hillside with his hands raised up and the staff of God in his hands. And if we remember the story of the crossing of the Red Sea and the defeat of the Egyptians in the Red Sea, there's a similar image of Moses presented there too, right? When God, uh, when God tells Moses that he's going to allow the Israelites to cross the Red Sea on dry land, what he says to Moses is to stretch his hands out, to stretch the staff of God out over the sea. And I want you just to kind of 
picture that, what, what that would look like, what, what, what the terrain would look like, what the geographical image of that would be. As Moses stretches his hand out over the sea and the walls of water divide, wouldn't that look a little bit like a valley there? And so the point of, of, the, of these stories is that these are, these are two parallel images. Moses standing above the valley with his hands outstretched with the staff of God in his hand. And just as the images, the pictures are parallel and the defeats of, of God's enemies are parallel, so the point is parallel as well. The point is, the victory is given by God. In both cases, God provides the victory. That's very clear in the Red Sea, isn't it? It's very clear that Israel did nothing to defeat the Egyptians. That was God's doing. God defeated the Egyptians in the Red Sea. It might not be quite as obvious in this case, right? I mean, after all, God uh, has Moses call Joshua to be a general. By the way, this is the first instance of Joshua, the introduction of Joshua, who's going to become an important figure as the story goes forward. But Joshua goes out with a military force and, and, and fights with Amalek. So, so there's actually warfare here. The Israelites are actually doing something here while they weren't at the defeat of the Egyptians at the Red Sea. But notice what brings the victory. It isn't the strength or the cunning of Joshua and his lieutenants. It isn't the superior military prowess of the Israelites in battle. It's just whether or not Moses' hands are up. That's all it is. It's the staff of God raised up. The whole point of that is not that the staff of God is some magical instrument or something. It's to say that this is the one who's in charge of the battle. God is the one who gives victory. Just as he gave victory over the Egyptians at the Red Sea, so here he gives victory over the Amalekites. God provides victory. That's the lesson. God provides victory. Now, go back once again to chapter 15. We're going to see the second part of the chiasm, the second passage uh, in, in the order here. And we're going to see that God provides not only victory, but he provides sustenance. Look at chapter 15, verses 22 through 27. And then we're going to see a parallel story at the beginning of chapter 17. Exodus 15, 22 and following. Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all of his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. The Lord provides water. He makes potable water from impotable water, sweet water from bitter. He provides a solution for the undrinkable water. And more than that, he provides assurance for their fear. Isn't it interesting that as much space is, is, is given to the Lord's statute, that he is their healer, as is given to the, the solution to the bitter water in the first place? He reminds them that he is their healer. He is the Lord who heals them. We, we come up with one of the names for the Lord from this, Yehovah Rapheka, the Lord, your healer, the Lord who heals you. He assures his people. Just as he had made the poisonous water clean, so he can make their broken bodies whole. 
We see the parallel to this at the beginning of chapter 17. Turn over to chapter 17. Verse 1. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of Zin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord, and they camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. You see the parallel? Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and taking in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? The Lord provides water. He makes sweet water from bitter in the first story in chapter 15. He provides water from the rock here in chapter 17. God provides for his people. God is the only source of life. He provides not only water, but he provides food. Look what happens in chapter 16. Look at chapter 16 with me. Verse 1. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Zin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness, and the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger." If we keep going, we, we see what, how God answers this, this problem in verse 13. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. And when the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. The Lord provides meat the Lord provides bread. The Lord provides water. The Lord provides for his people. The Lord gives them bread from heaven. And in fact, as we read at the beginning of our, of our sermon time this morning, this, this bread, this, this strange flaky stuff, this manna, which is a, the Hebrew translation of the question, what is it? This is the stuff that God provides for them for 40 years, we read. He's faithful in providing for his people. He provides food. He provides water. He provides sustenance. God provides victory. God provides sustenance. All of these stories are parallel to each other, aren't they? We, we, we see God providing victory at the beginning and the end of the passage. We see God providing water uh, at the beginning and the end of the passage. And God providing meat and bread throughout the passage. But all of it is pointing us to the main thing, the, the most important thing that God provides, which we see in chapter 16, which is rest. God provides victory, yes. God provides sustenance, yes. For his people is rest. In the midst of all of this provision, God gives instructions to his people about the Sabbath. Look with me at these verses. Exodus 16, verse 22, as God is, is speaking to them about the manna. 
Here are the instructions that he gives them. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil and all that is left over lay aside to be kept until the morning. And so they laid it aside until the morning as Moses commanded them and it did not stink and there were no worms in it. Which is, a, which is a very important point, isn't it? Because as you go through chapter 16 and you see the experience of the Israelites with the manna, one of the things that you find is that they are only allowed to gather enough for each day. Right? And if they tried to save any for the next day, it would rot and the worms would come up into it. God wouldn't allow them to, to provide for themselves for more than just that. Day. Again, it was one of God's ways of teaching them that he was the one who provided for them. They were not to provide for themselves. He provided for them. And yet here, on the sixth day, he says, I'm going to do something a little bit different. On the sixth day, I'm going to let you collect enough for the next day, the seventh day also. And, and, and the manna that you keep left over until the seventh day won't rot. There won't come worms in it. And the purpose of that, of course, is that then on the seventh day, they would be able to rest. On the seventh day, they would be able to rest. Now, why is it so important that God have them rest? On the seventh day. What is it about the Sabbath that is so important that God makes it a statute and a rule for them that they aren't to go out and gather anything on the seventh day and in fact makes it impossible for them to gather anything on the seventh day because the man doesn't show up on the seventh day. Why does this become one of the Ten Commandments later on? Why is it such a capital crime that any person who breaks the Sabbath is to be stoned to death by the Israelites? Why is this so important <coughs> to teach them something about God? To teach them something about themselves. We could spend time here talking about the human need for rest and sleep, right? Which is a very real thing. Physiologically, we need rest. Yeah, we need sleep. In the past year or two, I've, uh, I've gotten a little bit into weightlifting. And whenever I get into something, I read a lot about it and research a lot about it. And one of the things that you come across a lot in, in weightlifting literature is the importance of rest. The importance of sleep, you know, your muscles don't grow while you're working out in the gym. They grow when they're resting. And so you read things in the literature that says stuff like, you know, you need at least seven or eight hours of sleep every night, which is terrible news to me as a chronic insomniac. I never get that much sleep. It's kind of a hopeless, hopeless thing, right? But this is a physiological need. We need sleep. We make our kids get enough sleep because we know that their bodies need sleep so that they can grow properly. We know we need rest. We know we need sleep. We know we need to have a day off. But I don't think that's the main point here either. I think that fact that God has so created our bodies that we need rest in order to function illustrates the main point, but it isn't the main point itself. The main purpose of the Sabbath is to teach us humans that we cannot finally take care of ourselves. Everything in life teaches us the opposite, doesn't it? Everything in our culture, everything in life, everything in our experience goes in exactly the opposite direction. That if we are going to survive, if we are going to prosper, we have to work. Have to work hard. Have to burn the candle at both ends. Have to get up early and stay up late toiling for food to eat. Right? If I'm going to get ahead, I need to pull myself up by my bootstraps. And grind. And make it work. We, we appreciate that Protestant work ethic, as we call it, don't we? 
And we love stories of people who, who succeed, uh, you know, rags to riches stories of people who succeed because of their hard work and their diligence. And, and to be fair, to, to be honest, in a culture that has an increasing tendency towards a victim mentality and, and entitlement mentality, that's a good corrective, isn't it? It's a good corrective to remember that God has so organized the world that, that those who work hard will do better in a general sense. So th that's fine as far as it goes, but, but we have to be very careful with that, don't we? We have to be very careful not to begin to think that at the end of the day, the harder we work, the more we will be able to provide for ourselves. God teaches his people that they have to take a day when they are not allowed to work. Now, having a day off is so much a part of our culture, so much a part of our uh, worldview that this doesn't even strike us as, as unusual. In fact, we don't take one day off a week. We take two days off a week, don't we? We have the weekend, Saturday and Sunday. And so to us, this isn't very, very unusual. But in the ancient world, there weren't days off. I mean, if you were very rich and wealthy, you didn't have to work as hard as your slaves, okay? But there were no days off for anybody. You worked. You worked. But God says, no, no. My people will take one day when they throw all that out the window. My people will take one day where they say, we're going to just trust God. My people are going to take one day where they don't work, and in the back of their minds, they're going to be thinking, what's going to happen to my crops if I don't work today? In the back of their mind, they're going to be thinking, what's going to happen to my business if I don't open up today? In the back of their minds, they're going to be thinking, will my competitor get an edge on me if I don't work today? And their only recourse will be to say, I trust you, God. God provides rest for his people. <coughs> we are called to trust God to provide. This is countercultural in, in the Israelites' day, and it's countercultural for us too. We're good at ease. We're good at amusement. We're good at leisure. I don't think we're good at rest. I don't think we're good at taking time and saying, I am not going to be in control today. I am going to take today and recognize that I'm not in charge. God's in charge. I was thinking about this this week and I was remembering a song by a singer-songwriter named Josh Garrels. I don't know if any of you are familiar with him. He's a Christian singer in this song entitled The Resistance. He writes these words that I think are appropriate. Listen, listen to this, this, this couplet. He says, My rest is a weapon against the oppression of man's obsession to control things. It's a great song, actually. You should look it up and listen to the whole thing. But, but just think about those words. My rest is a weapon. Resting teaches us to stop trusting ourselves and trust God instead. God provides rest for his people. How does God provide for his people? How does God provide victory? How does God provide sustenance? How does God provide rest for his people? He does it by giving of himself. How does he provide victory? By working it for his people himself, right? At the Red Sea, he says, I will fight for you. You need only to be silent. 
With the Amalekites, he says, yes, you're going to fight, but I'm going to be the one who gives the victory. How does he provide water? He provides it himself. He gives Moses the solution to the water in the first part of the, of the story, and, and he provides Moses with, with a solution at the end of the story, too, by striking the rock. Striking the rock. You know, it's interesting, as you go through Scripture and, and you read how the New Testament authors reflect on this story of Moses striking the rock so that water comes out, they have some interesting observations about this. Listen to these words from Paul. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10. I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers... He's talking about this story, okay? I want you to know, brothers, our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea... And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Now listen, if I ever interpreted a passage of scripture that way, you would tar and feather me. Right? That is an over-spiritualization. That is an allegorization if there ever was one. What is Paul talking about? That makes no sense. Paul, it wasn't. Why does Paul say that? They drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. I think there's a couple of hints that help us understand what Paul is thinking as he reflects on that story. The first hint comes from something that Jesus himself said in John's Gospel. John 7, 37 through 39, we read this. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And he said this about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. Jesus teaches that he is the source of the water of life. I think that's the first clue to understanding what Paul's saying here. The other has to do with that strange statement that Paul makes where he says the rock followed them. The rock followed them? I mean, as you read the story in Exodus, there's one rock, it's there, it's in a geographical location, Moses comes and strikes it, that's all there is. The rock followed them, though, is what Paul says. What's he thinking about? What being followed them as they went through the wilderness? Or to, maybe to make it clearer to our thinking, what, what person was with them faithfully throughout the wilderness, through the Red Sea and in the wilderness, going in front of them and behind them and above them and around them and in them? Who was there? It was God, right? And as, as, uh, as Paul and the, and, the, and the early Christians read this story and they read what God says to Moses in Exodus 17 where God says, I will, I will be there on the rock in front of you when you strike the rock. They interpret that to mean that, that it wasn't just the rock that was struck, that it was God himself. God gives the water of life. The second person of the Trinity gives the water of life to his people. How does he provide water? By causing himself to be struck. How does he provide bread? By giving of himself. He is the true bread from heaven. Listen to these words from Jesus in John 6. As he... 5,000, the people say to Jesus, Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And then Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. 
Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. How does God provide for his people? He gives himself. He gives himself to his people. How does God provide rest? By laboring himself in the place of his people. God provides his own eternal labor so that we can be granted eternal rest. If you were to take time to look through the Gospel of John, for every occurrence of the Sabbath day, you would find an interesting thing. You would find that every time John talks about the Sabbath day, he, he has Jesus working on it. Jesus works on the Sabbath. He does. In, in one place, he heals a paralytic man, and then he tells the man to, uh, to pick up his bed and walk home. So in that case, not only is Jesus working in the healing, but he's telling somebody else to work. Take up your bed and walk. In another place, he heals a blind man, and rather than just doing it by fiat, which he certainly could have done, he makes a mud poultice to spread on the man's eyes. It's hard not to come across with the idea that Jesus is deliberately throwing something in the eyes of the religious leaders of his day. Jesus is deliberately working to provoke them. And there's all kinds of reasons why he does this, which we don't have time to get into this morning. But it's an interesting phenomenon as you read through the Gospel of John, and I encourage you to do it. See how Jesus works all the time, except for once. There's one Sabbath in John's gospel where Jesus isn't working. There's one Sabbath in John's gospel where Jesus is at rest. And it's the one that occurs after his body is taken down from the cross. That one Sabbath day when Jesus' body is placed in the tomb is the only one in John's gospel where Jesus can be said to not be working. Of course, in another sense, maybe we would say that he's then doing his most laborious work of all. And why does he do this? He labors so that we can rest. It is through God's eternal labor that we are granted eternal rest. So my, my exhortation to you, my admonition to you, brothers and sisters, is to find your rest here. My admonition to you is to lay your burdens down here. You don't have to carry them anymore. Find your rest in the Lord. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest.